that trick that parents use where they say, I'm not discussing this anymore or something like that, <laughs> uh, that works until they figure out that they can still keep talking. <laughs> and if they do, the conversation isn't really over. <laughs> Matt Austin, he's Joshua Crawford, and this is We Don't Know What We're Doing, and this is episode 7, the politics episode, I guess. Uh, we're getting close to uh, the midterm elections. They're, what, three weeks away? Uh, at least at the time that we're recording this. It might actually be useful for us to date the time that we're recording this, just in case something new and even stupider happens in the interim. It's good for you to have also a reference point. We didn't know about it yet. We're not responsible. <laughs> also, depending on how long it takes us to get this one edited. Yeah, that's uh, a very important point as well. We might be listening to this one after the uh, after the elections. <laughs> be coming with a postmortem yes. immediately after. Yeah. So we're what are we? We're about three weeks before the election. Uh yeah, I believe so. Which reminds me, I I only have about three weeks to get birthday stuff together for my son's birthday. Thanks. <laughs> Is his on election day this year, or? Um, it is not exactly. I don't think, but uh, when he was born, it was. So he is the the harbinger of doom, or or joy, depending it... on if you're you know Trumpus Victor. Yes, uh, he he was born on the day that Trump was elected president of the United States, although legal challenges ensued. And you didn't name him Donald. We didn't name him Donald uh, or Junior or anything. And yes, there were people on our side of the family that thought that two more joyous things could not happen in the same day. Um, <laughs> How we were frankly, did you feel? Uh, we were actually glad to have had the excuse to not vote because we weren't super excited <laughs> to vote for either of the candidates um and hey that's kind of related to our topic this evening actually but yeah we we didn't really want to vote for either one so we were happy to be like hey we couldn't help it we were in a hospital <laughs> plausible deniability yeah don't blame us whatever happens although if anyone disagrees and they'll just blame you for not voting so you're kind of screwed no matter what you do yeah i mean i guess technically we could have known that there was a potential conflict so we could have filled out absentee ballots but meh that requires planning yeah jamie was in the same boat she did absentee ballot cause she's she's like i have an excuse to not have to stand in line this is awesome <laughs> i mean technically you can do that anytime right there's no i don't think there's any like minimum requirement to fill out an absentee ballot is there it depends on the state some it's wide open virginia has like a list of 10 you know pretty wide ranging excuses from you know a pregnancy to i'm on vacation um as far as i know i technically could register to vote absentee because of the work location requirement so if you work and vote in different counties or cities mm -hmm. then that's one legitimate reason so hmm. even though i work you know six miles away it's a 15 minute drive um because that's in fairfax city and i live in fairfax county i'm pretty sure that i would be eligible uh, but i'm just too lazy to go through all that so that's funny I asked because I haven't looked into the requirements in Missouri, but I'm pretty sure I know a couple people that uh, use the absentee ballot like every year. So the requirements must be pretty lax here, too. Yeah. And I mean, as well, they probably should be. I, I don't yeah. really have any too uh, too large of a concerns. I, I don't think that's going to be the hot topic for voter fraud. <laughs> nah, I don't think so. If if there's a, a big spike up in absentee ballots, maybe we should take notice. So yeah, I guess uh, that's where we'll kind of start. So you weren't terribly excited to vote for, quote, either of the candidates. 
Um, neither was I. There's a whole bunch of people that will argue you this, you know, either way, whether or not you have to do the, you know, the lesser of two evils or to abstain and uh, maintain your purity. Uh, well, <laughs> those are the, uh, I, I guess that's the way we'll label the two sides. <laughs> um, I, of course, chose neither. So I ended up voting for McMuffin um, just because I didn't really want to vote for anyone, to be honest. But I wasn't going to vote for either of those two. Um, so, yeah. Just for my uh clarity because i'm i'm actually confused who who was mcmuffin <laughs> uh evan mcmullen was sort of oh. a last ditch um he qualified for the ballot on maybe like 20 some states theoretically the best chance he had was in utah um largely on the basis that he was mormon and okay. not donald trump um but you know i mean obviously even there he didn't really capture anything and no one expected much. It was mostly a protest vote at that point. Gotcha. Okay. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, so neither of us... Uh, see, I was curious where this was going to go, because last week, you know, we were sort of talking... <laughs> last week is so passe. Last episode, uh, whenever that may have been, uh, we were talking about, you know, is something worth doing if not effective? Mm -hmm. And so... When you apply that to voting, you know, does this completely rule out the idea of, I know this guy doesn't have a, cho a chance, you know, is that still a valid reason, you know, is that a valid reason to not consider your, to not allow yourself to vote that way, I guess. Yeah, and I guess... uh not to kind of copy the answer from last week too much, but in my mind, maybe part of the answer lies in what you consider worthwhile uh, or, or what you consider effective. If by effective, you only mean that you chose the winning side uh, in determining who is going to govern, then no voting for someone who doesn't have a chance of getting elected by conventional wisdom is not effective. But if by voting you are using that to represent your position and uh, your political stance, your, your beliefs, then you should not hesitate to vote for the losing side. Or if we're not in a strict two-party system, you know, just the losing candidate of many, because there can only be one winner. And if we're really going to have a representative democracy of any kind, we at least need to have one loser for each winner. So I, I don't think that's ineffective at all. I think that's a fair way of putting that. Uh, so to build on that, um, even talking about the act of voting at all, um, because I know... And we're going to be talking about things uh, as we do uh, from a particularly from our own standpoint, you know, having grown up in the evangelical background. Um, and there's a lot of we'll get to, I think, what evangelical even means in that regard uh, pretty soon. But one thing I think we could probably both identify with uh, coming up is the idea that the act and the ability of voting was sort of this, you know, sacrosanct right. You know, it was a um, secular sacrament, if you will. Uh, <laughs> you know, we have this thing. And, you know, if if we don't exercise our vote, then, you know, everything that the troops fought for to, you know, protect and, you know, from all the way back to the revolution, you know, it's for not. Which seems a little bit overwrought to me. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's funny because um, maybe we'll get into this more later also, but uh, the uh, the sacredness of the freedom that we have frequently gets wrapped into um, 
the idea of the sacred faith as well. Um, and, and I, I find that confusion and that blurred line to be somewhat disturbing. Uh, but yeah, so maybe we should kind of just bring up one of the topics we're going to try to, I feel like this is a big topic, like so many that we tackle and we're going to try to kind of split this into some smaller questions. And so one of these is that on both sides of the aisle, there seems to be this really strong emphasis in uh, or on voting, on registering to vote and on voting in general. So from the more conservative uh, or evangelical Christian side, the thinking seems to be kind of the way you just described it. Like if you don't exercise your duty to vote, you are somehow unpatriotic and you are trampling on the memory and the sacrifice of the men and women who have gone before us. And on the more kind of liberal side of it, uh, if you refuse to vote, then you're not exercising your more, your most basic form of civil disobedience and you're trampling on the memory of civil rights activists and freedom fighters from generations before and you're not exercising your civil duty and uh, so you you have betrayed the state and society and so both sides tend to get very um, very emotional over the whole concept of voting and the idea that someone wouldn't vote uh, or maybe would vote in a way that they don't understand is highly disturbing to them. Yeah, and I wonder how a lot of that that drive to make sure that, you know, that view of voting as the most important thing you can do, I wonder how much of that is driven by how much you perceive yourself to be on the losing side of things and thus the most in need of help. Because mm. for a lot of it, there's... You know, evangelicalism broadly has within it, you know, the narrative of the culture war is going to be lost. It's basically a slow loss, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and then on the other hand, on a more liberal side, having seen the results of the 2016 election, now it's, oh, it's because you didn't vote because you weren't as excited for her as you ought to as you wanted to be and so you thought you could sit this one out right although i feel like every election both sides have some narrative like that um you know something along the lines of uh the battle lines are being drawn the stakes are higher than ever before um it's it's almost like the trailer for the next marvel movie um, you know, there's, there's always some new, some new threat that's materializing, whether your quote unquote side won the previous election or not, doesn't really matter for, right. For it could narrative. all be lost. There's, it yeah. always struck me as there was almost a sort of eschatological component to this, where if you don't win, then it is the end of the world. And that was, I mean, right. this at least, uh, you know, Trump's pitch to the evangelicals was very much that that was the case. If Hillary wins, then it's game over. Mm -hmm. um, he is the only one that can save us from such a fate. Um, which you would think we would have a better answer for. But largely, apparently not. Yeah, I. the thing is, like... Like so many things, I think there's an element of truth in that, right? Um, there is, to some degree, if if we believe the narrative in Scripture where uh, Jesus told his disciples that there would be wars and rumors of wars, uh, but this is not the end, you know, but that eventually the end would come, uh, then we believe that the world is kind of on this gradual, slow decline. And eventually, there's going to be a point where it it all gets as bad as it's going to get, uh, and in, in similar to the days before the flood. And then that's going to be it. That's going to be the end. 
and that's not something that you can uh, change with your vote, I guess, if you believe that. You can you can maybe forestall it, you can maybe slow it, but you can't change it. And the thing that I I feel like maybe a lot of people haven't appreciated well enough is there has also been a shift in American politics away from some of the ideals of our founding, away from the freedom of the individual, uh, away from the the rights and the powers of the states, and toward the power of the state, the federal state. That power has continued to increase, and the power of the bureaucracy has continued to increase. And the thing is, there isn't one particular side, if we're talking about Republicans or Democrats, that is making that happen, and one side that's preventing that. Both sides, in their own way, are bringing about that shift. Um, some maybe faster than others, but uh, that's why you hear people talk about um, Republicrats and Democans, because in some ways they're really just different sides of the same coin. Right. And I guess, you know, to go down something of a rabbit hole here, I I mean, you sort of touched on federalism. Because I really think that it doesn't really make sense to most people today, um, the idea of why are rights reserved to the states. Um, I'm more or less willing to include myself and this, at this point. I not terribly convinced that the idea of you know local control is sort of this be all end all um so it's not really an interesting argument and i seems to be that that's the only one that exists beyond the idea that these concessions needed to be made so that individual states would have joined the union to begin with mhm mm yeah and this is maybe again a topic for another time because really the direction we're going with this is more um if we claim to be followers of Christ if we claim to be Christians then what is our civic duty because scripture makes it pretty clear that we are uh citizens of heaven and we we are looking forward to a coming city and a coming regime that is not of this world Jesus said my kingdom is not of this world so what is our civic duty? Where where do we fall there? Um, but on the uh, strictly political side of this, and talking about the the concept of federalism, uh, I think that's a that is a misconception that a lot of Americans have that reserving rights for the states or things like the electoral college, or even now, uh, kind of in the post Kavanaugh hearing days, people are questioning the the necessity of the Senate and the construction of the Senate where each state has uh, the same number of representatives appointed. Um, there's a lot of misconceptions out there that those things are simply artifacts of a time when communication was slow and it took more time to do things and that these constructs existed purely as a concession to those obstacles that could not be overcome. And the fact is, nothing could be further from the truth. Each of these institutions was erected with a specific, uh, I guess, usurpation would be the term, in mind, a specific abuse that had been observed in governments in the past, and they were erected to forestall and prevent such a usurpation happening in the United States. A lot of people may not be the, aware that the Senate, for example, uh, the representatives were not previously democratically elected. They were appointed by state legislatures. So at one time, these states had a very explicit voice in the federal government beyond just the, the construction and the ratification of the Constitution. So when, when people don't understand kind of the history of it, it's easy to mistake and, and misunderstand the purpose of them and to think that these things don't matter anymore. Uh, but they do. 
uh, I guess depending on your politics, maybe their destruction is a good thing because they are obstacles for certain agendas. Um, but they were per they were put there purposely, so I think they should only be discarded, you know, with full understanding of what what that potentially does to the governmental system. Right. I don't particularly have a dog in the fight of whether or not it should be abolished or changed. Um, I just actively don't care either way. <laughs> I I haven't yet seen uh, Chesterton's fence. And, you know, all the labels that are put up on it uh, for these particular arguments. Chesterton's Fence. Okay, so I'm ignorant of that. Explain to me what that is. I am actually surprised. Um, so this is a reference to uh, the author G.K. Chesterton, uh, who was either said or at the very least was credited with having saying that, you know, the idea is if you come across a fence in the road and you want to tear it down you have to first understand why the fence was put up there in the first place. Mm, okay. Which is effectively sort of, the argument I just made without understanding that, that reference. Correct. <laughs> Almost verbatim. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny. Well, okay, I have read some Chesterton, but somehow I missed that. <laughs> so on the... On the topic of of what is a Christian's civic duty, specifically when it comes to voting, kind of what prompted some of this is you came across an article in the New York Times written by Tim Keller. Excuse me, sorry. <coughs> That's all right. Yeah, so the article that he wrote uh, was titled... Uh, quote, how do Christians fit into the two-party system? They don't. Uh, which, And the general argument of it is that a lot of what we see, you know, if you've been on Twitter for like a week, um, especially if that week happened to be within the last two years, then you would know that 81% of white Christian evangelicals voted for Trump. That's one of the more often cited um, you know, exit poll data that has come out. And it's probably reasonably accurate for who self-identifies as white Christian evangelical. Um, I guess I can just drop, just say white evangelical for simplicity. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's, you know, if... You say that you're an evangelical. You're almost immediately identified uh, as a Republican. Also fairly reliable, you can probably identi be identified as white. Um, again, these aren't 100%, but if you're a betting man, uh, then yeah, I would take that bet. Um, then on the other side, there's you know the the so-called, you know, progressive Christian left that's almost universally identified with the Democratic Party. And, you know, there's there's real and active harm in sort of tying a religion to a political system. Because, and especially more and more lately, where political parties are less interested, seemingly, in being, you know, sort of the big tent party of appealing to everyone they're sort of going under in, you know, there's an ideological purity test where if you don't subscribe to everything that's on that plank, then you can't be, you know, a good Republican or a good Democrat. Um, and so to go along with that, you know, if you're aligning your faith with one party, then the assumption is that you're willing to take everything that that party stands for and saying our faith will back this. And so, you know, in myriad instances on either political party platform, there's real problems with identifying the church as saying, you know, this is the right thing to do. So is, is that kind of the the gist of the uh, the article that you came across by Tim Keller? 
Yes. Yeah, so something that I guess I got out of the article too is um, maybe a little bit down a different direction. And uh, that is that while it's harmful to associate the Christian faith with one particular party or another, uh, it's equally harmful to be silent and do nothing. Right. So what Keller seemed to be advocating for, which admittedly wasn't 100% clear to me, and maybe you got a different take on it than I did, um, because in some ways I guess he kind of seemed to be talking out of both sides of his mouth. But what I got out of it was that Christians need to be engaged in the political process and we need to make our voices heard and we need to vote, but we should actively discourage and fight against the idea of Christians being either Republicans or Democrats, stereotypically. Uh, sorry, you might have to repeat that when you broke up on my end. All right. Uh, I said that. <laughs> sorry. Uh, what I got out of it was that he was saying that Christians need to be actively engaged in the political system and make their voices heard, but that we should also be actively fighting against being stereotyped as either Republican or Democrat. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair take from that. So I guess one one issue that I have with that, and I'm curious your your opinion, um, it kind of gets back to what we were talking about before. I almost got the impression from Tim Keller that he views it as um, literally like a sacred duty to be engaged in the political process. And he obviously had scriptural justification for that. Uh, he had some verses that he quoted, but this kind of gets back to the the comments that we were making earlier when we were talking about uh, people that get really, really upset at the idea of you not voting uh, or that there's almost this eschatological urgency associated with voting and not just voting, but voting for the right candidate. And you also mentioned that there are kind of so-called Christian groups on both sides of the political aisle, uh, more more liberal-leaning and more conservative-leaning. So, I mean, do you, I guess, do you agree with Keller that it's kind of our civic duty to vote and to be engaged in the political process, or how would you respond to that? I don't think, I might have to walk back my agreement here, um, probably because I don't think he is advocating or saying that particular political actions such as voting uh or you know running for office or serving in some capacity are necessities of christians i i don't see that anywhere in the article uh i would say that he was so i would say that this is kind of pointing to almost trying to bring a lot of what is politicized out of politics in a sense. I mean, when he talks, you know, towards the end, he says, you know, so Christians are pushed to two main options. One is to withdraw and try to be apolitical. The second is to assimilate and fully adopt one party's whole package in order to have your place at the table. Neither of these options mm. is valid. Uh, then he goes on to talk <clears throat> about the Good Samaritan. So in that sense, civic duty is not strictly political duty here. And we're talking about our actual actions, how we relate to our neighbors, you know, outside of, you know, political and you know, state-run functions, if you will. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay. That makes sense. And, yeah, and I would be in total agreement with that. Um, I kind of feel like one thing that gets confused a lot on both sides of the aisle is to a Christian, we, we determine a lot of how we should live, um, as individuals and also as a community by 
the words of Scripture, and particularly by Jesus' words and by the words penned by his disciples in the New Testament. And so, you know, whatever kind of bad rap we get uh, being called judgmental, if we all ascribe to those beliefs, then it's reasonable to expect, if we're all playing by these rules, that um, we take them seriously. And so then the only debate or the only question is, how do you interpret them and what do you do with them? And so that's why so many of these arguments come up. It's not, uh, it really isn't that we're trying to be judgmental or trying to tell other people how to live their lives. It's just, if you and I are talking and you say, oh, I believe in the Bible and I'm living by it. And I say, oh, I believe in the Bible and I'm living by it. Then now we have something to talk about whether we agree with what it says or, or how we interpret what it says, right? Um, but we're not trying to put rules on somebody that they haven't already claimed that they subscribe to, if that makes sense. But anyway, that's a, that's a little bit of a side comment. But so uh, a lot of these questions, I think Christians get the lines confused because much of Jesus's instructions and much of his disciples' instructions are toward individuals and churches, not toward societies. So like an example would be when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, do unto others as you would have done unto you. That's an instruction to individuals. That's not an instruction to governments. That's not an instruction to society and to culture as a whole. And there may be an analog that you can make, but I get equally frustrated uh, with both sides of the aisle if I hear people trying to apply um, maybe more of a conservative interpretation and extend biblical requirements to governments. Uh, or when a more liberal side does that as well. It, it's bothersome to me when we try to interpret Jesus' words to apply to secular state governments. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I I do want to say that, I mean, certain things will have ramifications at a larger state level as far as what is good to do. Good meaning, in this case, moral, and not just yay for us. Um. <laughs> yeah, so like the concept of, of justice uh, that's made clear in Scripture. There, there is no command written uh, anywhere that I know of uh, that says, uh, you know, thou shalt render judicial decisions with justice and with equity. Um, but the principles are all through there, even, uh, you know, in the commandments that are given in the law and scripture that you're not supposed to use uh, unjust weights or balances when you're doing business transactions uh, in the 10 commandments that you're not supposed to lie. There are analogs and there are extensions of those. If that is just behavior, then a righteous government should promote that kind of behavior and should punish the the converse behavior so that makes sense uh, and yeah i agree that if you believe in christ and if you believe in the tenets of scripture that you would see things in it that you believe governments should follow but i still think we blur the lines a lot and even more so i think because there is so much talk in america about how we are a, a government, quote unquote, of the people, by the people, for the people, which I found out, by the way, my understanding uh, or of history was wrong. I thought that that was contained in one of our founding documents. It's not. That's uh, it's actually from, yes, it's from Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. But uh, we use that phrase a lot uh, to communicate some of the concepts from our founding documents. So do you... Do you feel like the fact that we're in America changes what a Christian's civic duty is uh, versus any other country? I suppose it would depend on the country. Um, I mean, everyone is going to find themselves with their own particular set of circumstances. 
And particularly once we get down the road of politics, um, as opposed to just civic duty, there's a huge amount of prudential judgments for what is best in that time, for in that place, for those people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess the reason. So, I with bring that respect, because... I guess I give a large amount of leeway in, you know, most ways of ordering, you know, our own civic life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just bring it up because I think it's also interesting that in Jesus' time, the disciples would have had essentially no political voice um, because they would have been, you know part of the Jewish people, which was a conquered people living in the Roman empire. Um, versus now we theoretically have some kind of political voice. Um, and I think throughout much of history, the, the average person has not. So I think America is certainly more of an anomaly, more of an exception than the rule in that regard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I am curious how, how we feel about how our voice is used in those spaces. Um, you know, this is something that I think was kind of particularly came to the front uh, during the last election, um, where, you know, people would quote, you know, these so-called, quote, evangelical leaders, uh, which is something of an oxymoron. Um, there is there is some degree to which evangelicals as a large group can't be led. Um, but it's very interesting because, you know, sort of, you know, they'll say evangelical leader, you know, so-and-so. And, you know, some of the times, like, the names that they would give, you know, you they would make sense, at least. You know, you have Franklin Graham, the son of Billy Graham, who runs Samaritan's Purse. Um, so you understand that connection. Uh, you know, then comes out Jerry Falwell Jr., the son of Jerry Falwell, the moral majority, um, now running Liberty University. At least, you know, that name makes sense. And then there were other names where, like, who are these schmucks? Like, why why are they why are they purporting to speak for me? And why are you listening to them as such? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's funny because even the term that you've been throwing around a lot, just because it is descriptive in some sense and gets used a lot, Christian evangelicals, I've never even really completely understood what that meant. And I actually just finished reading a book not that long ago uh, called The Late Great Evangelical Recession. And the person who wrote it um, claimed you know, to... Uh, be representing a sympathetic voice, I guess, for the the evangelical church. Um, but do you he remember wrote the, the author? Book as if I understand, uh, no, I can look it up for a second. Uh, he he wrote it as if I would understand what he meant by the term, <laughs> and uh, I still, even finishing the book, was not a hundred percent sure of what he meant. Yeah, there's sort of you know two competing. Uh, definitions that get intermingled and depending on who you're talking to you're going to rankle one or the other or neither uh there's sort of the the theological definition um which usually rests on uh there's a term called bebbington's quadrangle uh which basically just lists you know four common tenets of evangelicalism uh which i can't entirely remember off the top of my head but generally they there's the inerrancy of scripture, the necessity of a personal conversion. Um, I believe there's the necessity of actual outreach and evangelism and proselytism. Um, I can't remember what the fourth might be or if I've got them wrong, but that's kind of the general tenor. It's a, it's a technical, you know, theological, if you believe these things, then you are properly considered an evangelical. So there's that on the one side. And then on the other, there's the political demographic uh, definition, which is largely based on someone saying, are you an evangelical? And someone saying, I'm a Christian. I go to church sometimes, probably. <laughs> um, and that also usually resolves down to being white and Republican. 
Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, if you look at, you know, folks in the uh, black or other minority churches that would totally subscribe to everything in Bebbington's quadrangle, but they would never be considered actual evangelicals um, just because that label hasn't really been attached to them as a demographic label. So when I say, you know, 81% of white evangelicals, I'm using the political demographic term as opposed to a theological term, which probably doesn't mean a lot to most anyone that gets polled. Yeah, it's it's funny because like just the, the few theological points that you mentioned, like I would certainly be in agreement with those, but uh, – I think you make a good point. To my knowledge, there is no church of the evangelical. You know, there like there's no denomination called the evangelical denomination. Um and you all like you also mentioned, there are plenty of brothers and sisters that we have in Christ who are uh black or Hispanic or Korean or some other ethnicity that would hold to the majority of or not if not all of those theological tenets but somehow when talked about by political pundits don't get lumped into the same category um right and this was something that became you know particularly frustrating because i'd be talking to one of my friends and you know they'd be you know constantly citing you know franklin graham or jerry falwell jr and, you know, essentially with a tone of, you know, get your house in order. I'm like, they're not even in my house. Like, I don't, I wouldn't, I don't want them in my driveway. <laughs> As it turns out, um, the, the definition of evangelicalism is actually far too broad uh, to really mean anything. Right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, there was a couple of articles, um, so uh, Russell Moore of uh, one of the, it's hard to say leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention. He is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, uh, which is an arm of the SBC. Um, although he is generally reviled by a lot of the SBC because he's not pro-Trump or anything along those lines. And so, you know, he had an article in the Post during the election cycle of, you know, why... I don't want to be called an evangelical anymore or something along those lines. And it's precisely because of that kind of confusion, Um, Mm -hmm. which of course, when you write something like that, that's immediately fueled to be twisted as, Oh, you know, he's clearly not one of us. And I mean, in a sense, yes. (laughs) Right. Well, not in the sense that matters. Right. So the point of this book, uh, the, the evangelical recession uh, was basically that you know it's continuing the the narrative that you mentioned before that uh, basically we're losing the culture war, um, but actually that that wasn't really his point. The author was John Dickerson apparently. Um, his point was really actually that uh, the church with a capital C, which is the bride of Christ is not tied to one particular political label or one particular denomination. And it is going to survive and do just fine. Thank you very much. Um, But the way it looks is going to change. And so, you know, it's it's political affiliations and, and some of the trappings of it are going to fall away. And... In his mind, you know, that's actually a good thing. And I I would agree with that. Um, But so he was making the point that, hey, this is changing. And if you are, you know, a pastor or a lay leader in a church and you want to continue to do some good in your community and, and you want to continue to be around in 30 or 40 years, then you need to recognize the change that's coming, basically. And really basically get back to focusing on the gospel and doing the things that, that Jesus taught and not so much this, this other stuff, um, which I think was a timely message. But it just, again, the use of the term uh, 
is <laughs> bothersome and confusing to me because I don't think of myself as evangelical. I believe in the inerrancy of scripture and I believe in the necessity of a personal conversion and et cetera, et cetera. So you, I could get lumped into that category. Um, but I don't go around thinking of myself as an evangelical when I'm making a decision to vote or frankly, to do anything. I don't ask what does Jerry Falwell think or what does Franklin Graham think? Cause I could care less. Like that doesn't matter to me. Yeah, and when I do use it in relation to us, I real I'm using it in that sort of it's kind of a demographical sense, but it's you know culturally those are the types of people that we've grown up around. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a pretty fair statement. Yeah, I would say so. So here, this is another thing you had on here. Uh, I guess what do you mean by one issue voting? Because you ask, uh, do you consider yourself a one-issue voter, and is it legitimate to be one? Uh, yes. Yeah. So to go back on, you know, particular voting topics about whether or not, you know, a we should or must vote. Um, what do we base our vote on? Um, probably the most prolific, um, you know, most well-known one-issue voters are voters that vote solely on, you know, an abortion uh, stance, you know, where mm -hmm. if you're a pro-life voter and you will only vote for pro-life and that's the only thing that you're willing to consider, whether or not one, you know, the people you're voting for will be able to affect any change in that arena or two, if they're bringing along, you know, a poison pill behind them. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, the same works for other issues. That's just, that's, you know, clearly the most prominent one. Um, mm -hmm. you know, that's, or the other big one issue voters in the previous, uh, election cycle were, you know, for the Supreme court. Um, although that also usually resolved down to Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. And so there were people saying, look, I don't like either of these, but at least, you know, he'll give me that one thing that I want. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. For myself, I can't really endorse a, being a one issue voter in that sense. Mm -hmm. The thing I feel like it leaves you vulnerable to is... Anybody can come along and claim that they support the thing that you that is your one issue, and you'll vote for them, regardless of what the rest of their platform says and whether you can even realistically trust that position. Right, or even if the position is held in earnest. I mean, over the last you know ten, fifteen years, we'll say, if you are a one issue abortion voter. How much has that needle even moved or realistically been expected to be moved? Mm hmm. You know, yeah, if you were uh, a one almost... issue Obamacare voter, you know, in the early 2010s, you know, how many, how did, how much did that needle actually move? Right. And I, I don't believe, by the way, that um, we should be focused on just getting the right people in office so that they happen to be around when a Supreme Court justice dies or retires so that we can pack the court with people who support our one issue. Um, that doesn't strike me as a really good way of advancing our democracy, <laughs> but um, <clears throat> that's an aside. Yeah. Or even yeah, I, for that matter, holding the position in the long term, it's not, I, I don't, find it wise or helpful mm -hmm. yeah it's tough for me because um i guess in the way that you describe a one issue voter i would say i'm definitely not and could not uh, could not support the idea of someone being a one issue voter in that way but it is hard because i feel like there are several issues that could be i guess quote unquote deal breakers for me Mm -hmm. Which which I don't think of that as being a one-issue vote so much. It's just that there are standards that I have 
that regardless of what else you claim to support, I am not going to be able to support that. And I actually, so I'll give one that um, will hit closer to the Republican camp. Um, the the whole racism and neo-Nazi thing, uh, I don't care if a guy comes along and says, I'm pro-military, I'm anti-abortion, uh, we need to get prayer back in schools, blah, blah, blah. And he says all these things that Christians traditionally would be in favor of. But then he also is like, and we need to kick all these black people out and, you know, we can't be letting people in from these other countries and blah, 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 blah. I would not be able to support that. It doesn't matter what else. No Republican would do that. Surely. (laughs) Now, to clarify, (laughs) to clarify, um, as much as Donald Trump gets labeled a a racist and may actually, in fact, be one, uh, I don't think um, shutting down immigration from particular countries that have uh, generated terrorist threats temporarily is a racist act in its in itself in isolation but whatever uh yeah now if he had actually done that then he might have had a better leg to stand on but right but anyway the man may well be a racist and i'm not here to defend or or tear apart donald trump i'm just saying uh there are there are a lot of things that are important to me, but just because you say you're going to do those things doesn't mean I'm going to close my eyes to all these other things, you know. Yeah. Frankly, the president always struck me as someone so devoid of principles that it wouldn't be useful to label him as one thing or another. As long as he thought it would be useful, he would be happily adjacent to it, racism or, you know, anything else going alongside. Um. So I guess you would you would be just calling him like the ultimate pragmatist. Uh that's a cheerful way of putting it. <laughs> um I, I believe the most accurate term you know, someone was defending very vigorously that he wasn't actually a liar. Um in the sense that liars have an actual relationship to the truth. <laughs> where they they know the truth and they're actively seeking to to suppress it. Uh Donald Trump will has no actual relation to the truth. He just says what sounds good. Um and so in that uh in that sense the most accurate term to use for him would just be that he is simply a bullshitter. <laughs> so yeah, which is a slight variation of uh what was said of President Clinton as well uh during his term in office. Uh, was that he was more of a pathological liar because he actually believed uh, some of the things that he was lying about uh, was what was said back then. <laughs> and and uh, honestly, ironically, I think that that's true of many of the politicians. I think the only way that they can say some of the things that they do with a straight face is that they actually do believe them, um, which is amazing. It's yeah, it's hard when the choice that you're given is <clears throat> that they either actually believe this or they're just completely craven. And neither yeah. of them is a good look. <laughs> right. It's like they're either insane or they're a liar. Oh, boy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I guess kind of to sum up some of the, the topics that we've covered up till this point anyway, um, Scripture does clearly teach, uh, in our opinion, and I, I think actually we should make a nod to the fact that there are some Christian sects and denominations out there who would differ from this position, uh, for example, the Amish being one of them. Um, but Scripture says that we are to seek the good of the city in which we dwell. Mm-hmm. And there are numerous other references as well uh, to how we are to re- relate to authority. Romans talks about this, for example, that authority is put in place by God and it is done uh, or he gives government authorities their authority for our good, that the sword of justice is not wield in vain, etc. Um, you know, Jesus instruction to his disciples that you're to render to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's, etc. So we, the, the, the mainstream of Christian thinking 
has been that we are supposed to engage in our culture, in our society, in whatever capacity we find ourselves. In the ancient Roman Empire, you would not have had a vote. You wouldn't have had any voice whatsoever in the political process of the empire as a whole. But you could do things locally in your city to improve conditions for people there. So I think we can, without too much of a stretch, we can apply some of uh, that teaching from the New Testament to our lives now. So I think as Americans, if we have a vote, if we've been given that additional responsibility, then we do have a responsibility to exercise that, to exercise our political voice, and to do so in a considered fashion. So I think Matt and I would both agree with Tim Keller in that regard. That said, there are a lot of wrong ways to do that. And jumping on a political bandwagon is certainly one of those ways, because the other thing that scripture clearly teaches is that we are not primarily citizens of any country in this world. So I'm as pro-American as just about anybody, but my goal is not for America to beat everybody else. If I'm a follower of Christ, my goal is for people to come to know Christ for them to be followers of Christ. And I shouldn't care whether you come from Senegal or France or Bangladesh or from America. It shouldn't matter what your your color or your race or your ethnic background or your national background is. What should matter is whether you follow Christ or not. And either way, my goal should be for you to have what you need and for you to have the freedom to choose to follow him or not of your own accord. Um, so I think uh, when, when, we, when we get that confused and we get into the political process and we start wanting to legislate uh, Christianity into culture and society or use the military to advance Christianity in other countries, that's off base. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, a decent way to sum that up. And no, Jerry Falwell does not speak for us. <laughs> Please no. I, I guess, I don't know if I, we really answered that question. Do you feel like there is anyone that quote unquote speaks for us? And and by us, I'm going to drop the evangelical ter term and I'm just going to say the church of Christ, that, meaning not a denomination, but but those who are genuinely seeking to follow him. I mean, to that end, it almost depends on who you ask. Um, because I think a lot of people that are outside, you know, this sort of intramural argument will happily just uncritically accept that, you know, oh, okay, you know, these Christian groups are saying this. Ergo, that is something that sort of speaks for, you know, some set of Christians. Um, mm -hmm. And then that tends to get painted across the board. Mm -hmm. So yeah, in that like sense, one... you know, these people are that are claiming this mantle are speaking for us, whether or not it is right for them to do so or not. Right. One of the really difficult things about that, too, and we haven't really talked about this, so maybe this is also a topic for another time because it can be pretty deep i think but you can have christian groups with radically different political positions right i don't think either of us would uh would challenge that um the difficult thing is that i think a right understanding of scripture i'll just give the the issue you mentioned before abortion there are christian groups that are strongly for it uh, and some that are strongly opposed to it. I think the majority are, are opposed to it, but there are some that would support it. And they they will make biblical arguments for it. So while I think it is possible for Christians to genuinely be followers of Christ and have genuine disagreements on issues like this, I don't think there is two right answers. I think there is one right answer, I'm just open to acknowledge that it is possible for a believing follower of Christ to get it wrong, if that makes sense. 
and to genuinely believe that that's right. Yeah. But that's what's difficult. Yeah, and this has kind of been an example um, when our pastor has preached on this before, because I do think there is one right answer on the abortion question, that it is wrong. Um, within that, that alone, so that, you know, what that answer is has political ramifications. That doesn't make it itself a political thing. Um, if that makes sense. If we, you know, back up and just say very generically, you know, murder is bad. That's not a political statement. What you do in that event is, if you will. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, to talk about, you know, whether or not it's right for the church as the church, um, I mean, you can say either you know an individual church or even a dom denomination to advocate for political positions it would be right for them to say you know abortion is wrong the particulars of how you go about rectifying that you know whether it's getting more people on the court or you know do you pass these laws and you know chip away with uh, you know the death of a thousand cuts that itself is a political question that the church i don't think can have a position on whether, mm -hmm. you know, individual so, people within the church, you know, they can take positions, but there mm -hmm. is no, thus saith the Lord, you shall have nine originalist justices. <laughs> See that, I feel like that's a really good example because that, that can be extended to almost any other political questions. So another one that's really hot nowadays is uh, so-called income inequality uh, or wealth inequality. And so there are people in the church that very passionately have positions on this um, because it relates to tax policy um, and entitlements and a whole host of political issues, right? And so uh, I think everybody in the church would say that there's very strong teaching in scripture about supporting people that uh, are, are less fortunate, quote unquote, that don't have all their needs met. But how do you go about doing that? What are the policy decisions you should make? Scripture is silent on that. And so it's left to individuals to speak. Right. And that comes down to prudentialism. Um, to come back to that Keller article that we referenced earlier, he mentions, you know, he was talking uh, with a fellow from Mississippi that had gone to uh, Scotland, uh, you know, the very home of Presbyterians and you know, theologically, they're all completely aligned, and then they're talking, and, you know, the Scottish folks up there uh, that they're talking to were very pro, uh, you know, what we would consider socialism. And he's like, wait, what? Right. <laughs> but I, I truly don't think that's, you know, strictly, you know, evil on one side or the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, so even even some of our most cherished kind of American ideals, uh, like one of which being freedom, there's nothing in Scripture, in my mind, that says that a totalitarian regime is strictly evil. Um, we we have fought against it in this country because we've seen abuses, we've seen it lead to other evil things, right? Um, but nothing in Scripture says thou shalt not have a king. You know, most of the governments represented in those pages are empires or monarchies. So, right. A lot of politics is honestly, we're trying to do the best we can. Right. Which, which I think is, is, you know, and there's arguments on this too. Uh, you know, oh, the founding fathers weren't Christian. They were deists. Okay. Whatever. The, the point is back then, uh, they were, uh, very religious men. And they were trying to set up a government that would carry out their religious beliefs and protect those in the best way that they knew how. Uh, and, and I think that's still carried through today. Most people are voting to try to set up governments and policies that will advance that as best as they know. Um, unfortunately, my battery is about to die. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> so we probably need to wrap this discussion up. Yeah, um, I, I think we've covered a whole lot more than I thought we would. Um, yeah, do you want to move into semi-random excellence? I believe it's your Let's turn. Let's do it. So, yes, and my semi-random excellence for today is going to be somewhat regional. Um, but talking about uh, white evangelical Christians, um, there is a theme park in the Missouri area called Silver Dollar City. And if you haven't been, it is a whole lot of fun. Um, there are some rides. It's not uh, primarily a ride theme park, but there are some, some pretty good coasters and stuff, actually. Um, but really, one of the biggest draws is that uh, they have musical shows, they have crafts, and it's one of the few places that I know of, at least, that you can stand there and watch someone blow glass uh, for example, or uh, Smith Steel, the same way that they would have a couple centuries ago. And it is really cool to to see that, and they have lots of good food, and it is one of the most family-friendly, fun, uh, clean theme parks left, I think, in the country. Everybody, uh, most of the people that work there, I think, have got to be over 50. And they're uh, just super friendly, super nice. The The park is always immaculate. Uh, even at closing time, you'll be walking out. You won't find trash everywhere. It's all picked up. Um, some people get turned off because it's also one of the few places that you can go where, for example, if you're standing outside the magic shop, they will be demonstrating magic tricks and will also give you a presentation of the gospel while they're doing it through the magic trick. Uh, which I personally think is really cool. Uh, but but be warned, if you go, uh, you will be exposed on some level to uh, traditional uh, Christianity as well as pro-Americanism. Uh, so anyway, but it, it's a lot of fun. You should go with the family. Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening, uh, especially to this super long episode. We would love to hear from you on how all of our political ideas are wrong. Our email address <laughs> is podcast at we don't know dot info. Our website is we don't know dot info. That's got all of our social links. Uh, yeah, write us with whatever you've got, and we will come back at you sometime. <laughs> uh, hopefully, in another two weeks. Good night. Yeah. Probably could have talked about that for another hour.